Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, journalist turned cop turned journalist turned cop turned journalist, John Miller makes a blur of the revolving door. For years, he's been back and forth between the New York Police Department and the FBI and news media like ABC, and now he's the new hire at CNN. Don't miss the message. For corporate media, being a paid flack for the police in no way disqualifies you to offer what viewers will be assured is a dry-eyed analysis of law enforcement patterns and practices. The hire is part of CNN's rebranding under new leadership. The major stockholder cites Fox News as an exemplar. But while it's tempting to say CNN is acting like the kid who imagines his bully will let up if he offers both his and his little brother's lunch money, the harder truth is that CNN likely knows it won't attract or appease Fox or Fox viewers. So we should focus less on how one network counters the other than on who they're both ready to throw under the bus. In this case, that's Muslims. We'll talk about the John Miller hire with Sumeya Wahid, Senior Policy Counsel at Muslim Advocates. Also on the show, listeners may have seen the Just Asking Questions, Don't Get Mad Atlantic article about how it might make sense to keep pricing insulin out of the reach of diabetics. Because, wait, wait, hear me out. The idea was that if insulin winds up cheaper than newer, better drugs, more people might die. Other outlets are musing about how higher unemployment might be the best response to higher prices. Why are we doing thought experiments about hurting people? Implied scarcity... Obviously, we can't do all the things a society needs, so let's discuss what to jettison is a whole vibe that major media could upend, but instead enable. We'll talk about how that's playing out in coverage of inflation with Chris Becker, Associate Director of Policy and Research and Senior Economist at the Groundwork Collaborative. That's coming right up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. In March of this year, John Miller, then Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence and Counterterrorism for the New York Police Department, told a New York City Council meeting that, quote, there is no evidence, close quote, that the NYPD surveilled Muslim communities in the wake of September 11th, 2001, based, he said, on every objective study that's been done. At that point, media had extensively documented the unconstitutional discrimination of the NYPD's so-called demographics unit, including installing police cameras outside mosques and reporting store owners who had visible Qurans or religious calendars. And the NYPD had agreed to disband the unit in the face of multiple federal lawsuits. In September... CNN hired John Miller as chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst. Part of 
changes attached to CNN's absorption by Warner Brothers Discovery, whose most powerful shareholder is libertarian billionaire John Malone, who has stated that he would like CNN to feature more, quote, actual journalism, close quote, citing, as an example, Fox News. Forget what it portends for CNN. The Miller hire is a message to Muslim communities about who it's okay to harm under official sanction and how eagerly some will strive to deny and erase that harm and its ongoing effects. We're joined now by Sumeya Wahid, Senior Policy Counsel at Muslim Advocates. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Sumeya Wahid. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I want to read just a little bit more context for the statement that John Miller made to New York City Council member Shahana Hanif when she asked for transparency and an official apology for the NYPD's surveillance and harassment of Muslims. Just before he said there's no evidence, Miller said, quote, Perception allowed to linger long enough becomes reality. I know from my own conversations with Muslim members of the community and Muslim community leaders that there are people who will believe forever that there were spies in their mosques who are trying to entrap people, close quote. It seems important to acknowledge that this isn't just lying, this is gaslighting, right? Yeah, and it's lying under oath. He was providing testimony under oath to the city council. It's important to note he had choices in terms of how to respond to this request for an apology. He could have flatly refused it. He could have defended the NYPD's program. I wouldn't agree with that either, but he could have done that. And instead, he chose to lie about something that's well-documented. And as you said, specifically something that harmed a marginalized community, the Muslims in the New York area, whose harms that they suffered from this massive surveillance echo through today. And this was not that long ago. This program started in the aftermath of 9-11, so about 20 plus years ago. And then the AP reported on it, and I think 2012, they won a Pulitzer Prize for their reporting on it. And they reported with a treasure trove of documents, internal documents from the NYPD, some of which our organization utilized in our lawsuit against the NYPD for their spying. And a federal appeals court explicitly said that our client's allegations were plausible, that the NYPD ran a surveillance program with a facially discriminatory classification. So he chose to lie about something that's well-documented. He chose to basically fit in the face of Muslim communities who were harmed by this program and has basically been rewarded for it by being hired by a major news outlet with a position that I I don't even know how much he's going to be compensated, but he's now got a national platform to further spread lies. It's incredible. And And I just want to draw you out on one piece, which is that, you know, folks, even critically thinking folks will have heard, yes, this was a program that happened, but it was ended, despite what Miller and his brain, which we don't want to explore, believes. The program ended, and so therefore, maybe things are better. 
could I just ask you a little bit about the harms from something like this surveillance program, which is cameras outside of mosques, interrogating people in stores, you know, it doesn't, Mm -hmm. the harms don't disappear when the program is officially ended. Not at all. So first of all, just from our lawsuit, and our lawsuit was specifically for New Jersey Muslims who were affected by this, and there were other lawsuits for the New York Muslims, and there were Muslims outside of the New York and New Jersey area who were affected by this. But just from our lawsuit, we knew that the NYPD spied on at least 20 mosques, 14 restaurants, 11 retail stores, two grade schools, and two Muslim students associations in New Jersey. So every aspect of Muslims' lives was being surveilled. And the community finding out about this pervasive surveillance, that's not something that you can just dismiss. The community basically was traumatized by this. And the result, there's a Mapping Muslims report that actually goes into all the effects, some of the impacts on the Muslim community from this notorious program of surveillance. And they found that, you know, Muslims suppressed themselves in terms of their religious expression, their speech and political associations. It sowed suspicion within the community because people found out, you know, the person sitting next to me at the mosque was an informant. How can I go to the mosque and trust everyone there? Maybe I won't go, right? Of course, it severed trust with law enforcement and then contributed to just a pervasive fear and unwillingness to publicly engage. So that you can't just flip a switch on. Yeah. If the NYPD actually wanted to address those harms, that would be a really long road to repair. Yeah. And by having John Miller in his position and, and not actually censuring him or ha- firing him for those comments, the NYPD signaled the opposite, right? That they're going to back somebody who doesn't care to address the harms of the department. And then, of course, now he's being further validated by a national news media company. Well, and Miller does big lie, a term, by the way, that is now reportedly forbidden at CNN with reference to Mm. Trump's stolen election. But in 2017, Mm. as Josemar Trujillo wrote for FAIR.org, Miller was on a local radio station, WNYM, saying that, quote, activists have in their mind this idea that police departments in cities like New York run massive surveillance programs targeting innocent civilians for no reason. Now, that's nutty. I mean, why would we do that? How could we do that? And how would it make sense? Close quote. Again, this is beyond misinformation to disinformation. And it's very clear that this is his jam, you know. And so Mm -hmm. CNN has to want him for that and not despite that, you know. It just, it's breaking my brain. (laughs) Yes, because news networks should be helping us sort fact from fiction, not further destroying the line. Otherwise, they're nothing better than propaganda machines. And this is not just propaganda. This is specifically erasing the experiences of marginalized people and to elevate law enforcement above any criticism, you know, much less actually holding it accountable to ordinary people. And we know that law enforcement has a pattern of systemically depriving communities that are already marginalized. Black communities, Latinx communities, poor communities, Muslims, disabled communities. I mean, the list goes on. So basically, CNN signaling that this is where they're putting their weight. 
Yeah, and you know, at that point, Josmar Trujillo was writing about how the NYC City Council was calling on the police department to be transparent about surveillance operations. That was something called the Post Act, you know. And the police and the right-wing media came in shrieking, like, this is going to be a roadmap for terrorists to how to attack us. But the point is, that hysteria pulled the goalpost to the right, you know. So now transparency, what surveillance operations are you doing, becomes the weirdest thing that you can call for. And ending that discriminatory surveillance and harassment is pushed off the page and, and off the table. And I just wonder what your thoughts are about media and journalism and what they could do to help or could stop doing that hurts. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, again, going back to, to my point that news networks are supposed to help us sort facts from fiction, not further destroy the line. And specifically with the powerful actors, whether they're police departments or elected officials, to utilize that truth-telling, the investigatory process to hold those actors accountable, because that should be the role of the news, is finding the information that might not be obvious, accessing the records that should be public because we live in a free and open society, supposedly, and enabling people to take that information and hold their elected or public officials accountable. So simply seeding ground because there's a loud, screaming, radical voice out there is definitely not the answer. And to to kind of further reiterate, you know, the AP, by reporting on this, won the Pulitzer Prize. So it's not like they're, you know, it's not like there's no, you know, reward for it besides, you know, a free and well-engaged society. We should be rewarding truth-telling and proper investigations by journalists. But, you know, this is a rightward shift at CNN under the new chairman. And it comes after the firing of Brian Stelter and John Harwood for criticizing Trump and Republicans who engage in election denial. So the story is already being told by these moves, right? So it's just really alarming and disturbing for anyone who values truth, who values our democracy, and particularly for the marginalized communities who know that this type of gaslighting, this type of elevating law enforcement above any kind of reproach is going to continue to harm us. And I wish I didn't have to note that nothing about that program made anybody safer. Yes. Because what we're going to hear is okay, yeah, we're harming some people's civil liberties, but it's all about safety. And so I, I wish we didn't have to say it, but the thing is, it, that that harm didn't make anybody safer. Right. The entire massive surveillance apparatus did not lead to one investigatory lead. And also point out, the federal appeals court that ruled for our clients also cited the Japanese internment as a bad example of being overly deferential to the executive branch, which law enforcement is part of, and not wanting to repeat that shameful history. So one step towards repeating history is denying it. Another step is forgetting it. But active denial just accelerates that process. So it's very unsettling. And CNN should really just reverse course 
but you know, I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> so it's pretty discouraging. Well, we're going to encourage listeners to encourage that to happen. Um, we've been speaking with Sumeya Wahid, Senior Policy Counsel at Muslim Advocates. You can find their work online at muslimadvocates.org. Thank you so much, Sumeya Wahid, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. In a section labeled Core of the Matter, The Economist declared, quote, Despite rosier figures, America still has an inflation problem. Is higher unemployment the only cure? Close quote. I guess we're meant to find solace in the idea that the magazine thinks there might conceivably be other responses in addition to what we are to understand is the proven one, purposely throwing people out of work with all of the life-changing harms that come with that. CNBC's story, Inflation Fears Spur Shoppers to Get an Early Jump on the Year-End Holidays, encouraged us to think that inflation is a Scrooge. So, an abstraction that is somehow stealing Christmas, to which the healthy response is to make more people jobless, while corporate profits soar. It makes sense to corporate media, but if it doesn't make sense to you, you're far from alone. Chris Becker is the Associate Director of Policy and Research and Senior Economist at the Groundwork Collaborative. He joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Chris Becker. Thank you so much for having me. We have this very important discussion. Well, I know that lots of people don't really understand much about how the economy works, and I, and I don't hold it against them, frankly. I do hold it in part against corporate news media, who I think rely on that lack of knowledge to sell ideas that people wouldn't buy if they understood them. So if you're having a first conversation with someone who says, boy, prices are high, this inflation is killing us, and, you know, the paper says it's wages, how would you try and reorient that conversation? Where would you start? Right. I, I think there is a lot of misinformation and misunderstandings floating around that are perpetuated by the media at times. And so where I would start with the conversation is to say that when we're thinking about inflation, we need to understand that there are stark differences in how American households and consumers are experiencing the post-pandemic economy versus how corporations are faring. So for consumers, what this has meant is higher prices, higher prices at the grocery store line, at the pump even for essential goods like baby formula that are required for basic nutrition of infants. And so the bottom line for consumers is that it's become harder and harder to make ends meet. But corporations have turned consumers' pain into their own gain. And so what we've seen corporations do is that they've used all these crises as an excuse to pass on higher prices to consumers, padding their profits in the process, and then funneling the extra money back to their wealthy shareholders and investors. And like you mentioned, there are a lot of narratives going around that corporations were forced to raise these higher prices, you know, that they had higher input costs or that wage demands were simply too large, and they had to raise prices to compensate for that. But what we've seen, actually, is that not only have corporate profits hit record highs, far exceeding what we saw prior to the pandemic, but also profit margins have hit their highest level in 70 years. Wow. And so what that means is that for every dollar that these corporations are earning, 
a larger percentage of that is going to corporate profits rather than paying off input costs or paying wages than what we've seen since the 1950s. So not only are corporations making a lot of money, they're actually squeezing consumers for more than they have in 70 years. And so, yes, input costs have gone up, wages have gone up, but corporations have passed all of that onto consumers in the form of higher prices and then a little bit more. So they're actually making more and more profits than they used to. And I just want to add the way that media framing tends to talk about workers and consumers as though they were different people is very frustrating in terms of understanding what's going on. You know, right? I'm the one paying at the pump and at the grocery store, and I'm also the one working for wages. So it, it's very obfuscating to separate those groups rhetorically. Yes, absolutely. And one of the biggest problems is that wages are not rising fast enough, right. that we've seen that wages have gone up, but not by as much as inflation has gone up. So the purchasing power of these workers in terms of what their wage actually buys them has gone down. And so we actually need higher wages, not lower wages. We need to ensure that workers are being fairly compensated for the higher prices that they're seeing. That's exactly right. Well, when I see outlets like The Economist kind of toss off phrases like the remorseless mathematics of economic policymaking, that's sending a message, right, to readers that choices aren't being made. It's as if it's the hand of God. And as well as misrepresenting what you and I know is the very contested nature of economics— If you have different goals, you want different policies. It also seems to encourage a kind of passivity on the part of people. There's really nothing you can do about it. It's just it's just math. You know, it's just math. It's very frustrating. I I think that's exactly right. And when we're thinking about corporations, you know, they do have options. They do have other choices of how they want to go about making profits. We often frame it as if it's this question of should corporations be allowed to make profits or not? And, of course, in a strong economy where everyone's doing well and everyone's making money, corporations will make profits, too. The real issue is how they've gone about making these profits. And so, unfortunately, we've incentivized these corporations to really go after this price-gouging profiteering strategy rather than pursuing other strategies that could be good for all of us. So, for example, you know, one option that corporations have is that it's not obvious that higher prices are always better for corporations either. If corporations keep their prices low, Consumers can afford to buy more from them, and they will make more money. But unfortunately, they put all their eggs in this price-gouging basket instead. And, you know, in the long run, these low prices could be good for corporations. If you keep your prices low and and the products are affordable, consumers will see that, and they're more likely to keep shopping with you. They're able to expand your customer base. And so I think even, you know, the the high prices could, in some ways, be short-sighted for these corporations, too. Another big problem is that corporations are not investing this money. We know that corporations are making all these profits. They could be taking this extra money and saying, let's actually invest it so that we can have long-term profitability, long-term sustainability. Let's try to bring our costs down. Let's try to expand our productive capacity so we can produce more in the future and make more money. Unfortunately, they're not doing that either. What we're seeing instead is that corporations are taking all those extra profits and instead doing share buybacks and dividends and funneling extra money to their shareholders. The shareholders don't necessarily have the best interest of the corporation in the long run or the economy as a whole in mind. They want to see a short-run return right now, make sure they make their money while they can, 
And so they're incentivizing these corporations to go in all in on price gouging, funnel the money back rather than taking the more risky investments in the long run that could benefit all of us. We need to really move away from this model where corporations are so reliant on shareholders who are, are really prioritizing short-run profits and profiteering over long-run investment. Well, I was struck by a recent tweet of yours in which you said, we can continue arguing about precise causes of inflation, but, you know, we have to connect it to corporate profiteering. And you said whether this profiteering is a cause of inflation or just a distributional consequence, we don't have to accept this. We can build institutions that ensure everyday Americans get a bigger piece of that pie. I wonder if you could just finally talk a little bit about that. What institutions need to be grown? How do we build them? Just tell us a little bit about that positive vision. Sure. I think that a lot of it goes back to what you were talking about before, where the consumers are workers. And unfortunately, you know, we have built a system that relies on exploitation of labor rather than building up workers' rights and good pay. So corporations are not paying workers well. They're not giving them proper rights. They're not respecting their dignity in the workplace. And we see the consequences of this. We've seen it very recently in the labor strike that we've seen in the railroad industry. And so... Railroad workers are workers that our economy really depends on. They're essential workers within our supply chain that allow consumers to access the goods and services that they need. If there's one thing we've learned in this crisis, it's how important our supply chains are. But railroads have, instead of treating these workers well and taking care of them, have assumed that they can continue to exploit them over and over again, and those workers will always be there when we need them. And finally, these railroad workers are saying enough is enough. They're making very simple demands just to have basic paid sick leave so that they don't worry about you know, losing all their income when they get sick. And so now we are faced with a situation where we could have a railroad strike, which will throw our economy into disruption once again and raise prices for everyone. And so we should be investing in workers, investing in higher wages, investing in unions because it's the right thing to do, but also because... It will allow workers to focus on their jobs, get the essential tasks they do done without having to worry about, you know, having enough money, being able to make the right choices for their families. So I think a lot of it just starts with investing in workers first instead of, you know, corporate exploitation. Well, we're going to end on that note. We've been speaking with Chris Becker, Associate Director of Policy and Research and Senior Economist at the Groundwork Collaborative. Their work is online at groundworkcollaborative.org. Thank you so much, Chris Becker, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you'd like more information, you can check out our website. It's FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.